Good afternoon and welcome to Rockefeller Capital Management's special client event, Can Private Sector Innovation Help Us Win the Coronavirus Battle? All participants are on a muted line throughout the event. Soon after completion of the event, a replay will be available on rcm.rockco.com. At this time, I'd like to introduce Greg Fleming, President and CEO of Rockefeller Capital Management. Greg. Thanks, Joe. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Greg Fleming, and I'm pleased to welcome clients, friends of Rockefeller, and employees to our second event focused on bringing differentiated insight and advice to all of you. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Vivek Lamaswamy, founder and CEO of Roy Van Sciences, a healthcare company focused on unlocking innovation in medicine. Also, I'm happy to welcome Jimmy Chang, Rockefeller Asset Management's Chief Investment Strategist. Jimmy's on for the uh, second time following up on the conversation we had two weeks ago. Coming at, at it from the cutting edge of innovative medicine, Vivek brings tremendous insight into the whole coronavirus crisis, including thoughts on treatment, trajectory, vaccines, and long-term consequences. Jimmy returns to this group with thoughts on markets and stimulus, as well as insight into on-the-ground developments from China and throughout Asia. Jimmy will turn the tables and ask me a few questions after I talk through things with him, and we will close it out with a final thought from Vivek. So I'm going to start with Vivek. Welcome, Vivek, and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Greg. Can you hear me? I can. That's great. Vivek, why don't we start with uh, for the group uh, and, and take a minute on this because uh, we, we're, we appreciate you being here and I want everybody to understand the business that you founded and what uh, Royvan is and does. So why don't you start with a little bit of an overview on Royvan? Sure. I, uh, I'm the founder and CEO of Royvan and we're a unique kind of biopharma company in that we tend to focus on areas outside of the core focus of big pharma but where the medical need is is most pronounced. And I started the company about six years ago with the vision of both focusing on underappreciated areas as well as on with the mission of reducing the time and cost of getting new medicines to patients. And I'd say if I've learned one thing over the last six years, I think industry inefficiency contributes to that, but I think there's a lot of other contributing factors that we need to address as a society as well. And uh, you know, I think this COVID-19 pandemic highlights that as one recent example on that list. Now, Vivek, in addition to uh, founding and running uh, Royvan uh, and uh, that placing you at the center of all this, you actually have uh, a, a personal angle on this as well and, and really have uh, direct insight into what doctors in New York are, are dealing with. Can you provide a little color on that for uh, for the group? Yeah, no, I'm happy to happy to do that. It's, it's obviously a difficult time for a lot of people uh, across the country, really across the world. And so my story is really just one among many. But in a, in a personal sense, this has touched our family life as well. I had the good fortune of having a, a young son a little over five weeks ago. So it's our first son, and he's a newborn, and I'm, I'm here at home with him. But uh, the flip side of that is after about a month of maternity leave, my, my wife, who is a laryngologist special, specializing in airway, made the decision to end her maternity leave early to go back to the hospital after about three and a half weeks of maternity leave to support the massive overflow of COVID-19 patients that were hitting the hospitals in New York City. 
And I, I respected that decision immensely, but the sense that uh, she had was, as a fireman doesn't run from the fire, a doctor can't turn their back on the situation either. And it raised a difficult decision for us, uh, where she's now breastfeeding remotely, sending us frozen milk across the across the country. I'm now in Ohio, where I have the support of my parents. It's where I grew up. But it is something that we're doing to make this work. I'm running a company remotely from Cincinnati, Ohio, which is my hometown. And at the same time, my wife is on the front lines with admittedly high, high risk of exposure and updating me daily in terms of what the picture looks like in New York. And I think it's in some ways made us all the more empathetic with the struggles that many people are going through across the country right now. So happy to talk about that and more, Greg. Yeah, well, uh, just uh, to, to make the, the obvious point, uh, your sacrifice is appreciated along uh, that of so many at this time. Uh, Vivek, can you, uh, you know, she, you're talking to her and, and obviously constantly, uh, maybe a little bit of color uh, for uh, our listeners in terms of how, how it is in New York and some of these hospitals are on the front lines. So, so I think it's, they, they, I think in the hospitals they are seeing things they have not seen before. My wife told me that, you know, for the first time she's seeing, this was last week even, two patients using the same ventilator. They are clearing out I, you know, all of the ORs, reconverting them, as many of them as possible, to ICUs. They're clearing out entire floors and redeploying people even outside of their area of specialty or expertise. Uh, definitely shorthand on doctors, on nurses, on healthcare practitioners who are being redeployed outside their area of specialty. I would say that it, my, my uh, net take is that it is one step short of an outright horror movie, per se, but I think that they are definitely doing things that they haven't done before by way of redeploying staff, by way of sharing ventilators. I think in New York, they have been, at least in, in New York's Manhattan hospitals, have been not yet uh, totally shorthanded on, on protective gear for healthcare workers. I think that they're fearful of a shortage, but thankfully, my wife and the people she works with have told me that they are still reasonably well protected. Um, you know, I was able to get my hands on a large order of masks through a personal channel that I had. I had them immediately sent to her and her colleagues. But all in all, I think that we, they're still expecting the worst of it to come in the next couple of weeks when they're really going to enter the thick of it. So that's, that's what I understand from her in terms of an on-the-ground view. And Rebecca, let's go to uh, to the therapeutics around this and, and trying to treat the virus, which you also have uh, insight into. Uh, you know, what what uh, how can we treat the virus so far? Uh, you know, you, there, there's almost daily uh, news around um, you know some big biotech company talking about uh, some treatment, whether it's from past diseases, uh, you know, HIV or uh, uh, Ebola or others. Uh, that, that might be applicable here. But where does it stand uh, from your vantage point when you look across ways of, of treating it once you have it? And we'll get to things like vaccines later, but let's start with the treatment. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm happy to do that. And, and Greg, it might actually just be easier for me to give a bird's eye view inclusive of vaccines just to, to orient everyone, because I know everyone's hearing a lot, of, a lot of developments in the news every day. Just to put it into context, in the R&D landscape, you have the vaccines. You got the vaccines, right, which are about preventing people who are uninfected from becoming infected. And then you've got therapeutics, which are about treating people who have been infected. In the bucket of vaccines, you have two different types of vaccines, peptide-based vaccines 
and nucleic acid-based vaccines. Peptide-based vaccines or live attenuated vaccines, these are the more traditional approach that you might be familiar with when you're thinking about taking a small amount of weakened or dead virus and introducing that into a healthy or virus-naive population. That's the way most of our commercial vaccines work today, or taking a protein that that vaccine expresses and introducing that into human beings. There are certain companies pursuing this type of strategy. However, the most advanced vaccines right now are not peptide-based vaccines, but are nucleic acid-based vaccines, specifically mRNA-based vaccines. So these are the nucleic acids, the, the software effectively that encodes the proteins of the virus. And these are introduced via, you know, via normal injectable means, but these haven't yet been proven in the past. So this is really charting uncharted territory here. This is breaking new ground in terms of vaccines that are actually easier to stand up quickly from a speed standpoint. So I think that's why we've seen the mRNA-based vaccines enter the clinic so quickly. But I think a question on the back end will be the ability to supply a large population, even if they are successful, because the manufacturing methods for RNA-based vaccines were optimized for smaller populations, personalized medicine in the area of cancer or rare disease. So that's one of the questions that remains to be worked out there on vaccines. So, so that's, that's sort of category one, two buckets, peptide-based vaccines and nucleic acid-based vaccines. And, and then yeah, on and therapeutics... Before you go on... Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Before, before you go off the vaccine, can you talk a little bit about timetables, uh, realistic timetables that flow from uh, the, the, the hierarchy you just uh, walked through? What might be available when and to what kind of numbers? Yeah. So, so typically, conventional vaccines take over a decade to go from preclinical testing to commercial products. In the context of a pandemic, that can be shortened considerably, uh, but I think it would require regulatory flexibility. I think even with the, I, I believe, under the most optimistic assumptions, an eventual approval for a COVID-19 vaccine would be at least a year, probably a year and a half away, even under optimistic assumptions. And I think furthermore, even if approved, there's a separate question that we are going to have to answer, a bridge we're going to have to cross with respect to manufacturing it at scale that it can actually be rolled out to enough people. Now, I have some views on this and in terms of how we can prioritize which people get said vaccine if we're so fortunate to have one, but we can, we can discuss that a little bit later. That's also why I think that a national strategy predicated on the existence of a vaccine, A, because it's unknown whether it will succeed or not, RNA-based vaccines have not yet demonstrated widespread efficacy in any other disease area. B, it's just going to take a, a minimal amount of time, at least a year, probably at least a year and a half. And third, that there's inherent risk that the manufacturing scale-up won't necessarily meet the demands of the population. I think our national strategy cannot be predicated on the existence of a vaccine. And I think that's where therapeutics come in. So therapeutics are treatments for people who have been infected with the virus. And here, for simplicity, I would put them into two categories as well. You could have direct antivirals, which are targeting the virus itself. Here, this is where the hydroxychloroquine discussion comes up. This is a, this is a direct antiviral in the way that it acts on this virus. Gilead has a drug in late-stage studies called remdesivir, 
which is something that prevents viral replication. We'll see results for that program pretty soon as well. Hydroxychloroquine is oral, remdesivir is administered IV. We'll see those results soon. That's one category. And then the second category is therapeutics that act on the body's immune response, modulating the body's immune response, because one thing we've learned about this virus is even after the viral replication phase has stopped, that is the virus has stopped propagating itself, and even after the virus may start to disappear, in certain patients, in about 20% of patients, you may have a revved up immune system whose effects outlive the virus in your body, which means that the immune system is attacking key organs, specifically the lung, resulting in acute lung injury. This is the principal source of requiring intensive care and mortality in this disease. And so we are among a group of companies. There are many companies, several companies at least, targeting different, uh, different immunological targets in the immune response cascade to potentially attenuate and reverse the body's immune response in a way that would spare the most severe patients of severe consequences when they do show up at the hospital. So that's, a, that's at least at least a 50,000-foot level, Greg, a bird's-eye view of where the vaccine landscape stands and where the therapeutic landscape stands today. And I do think it could be possible to envision therapeutics approved on a, on a much faster timeline than that I laid out for the vaccines. That was terrific. Um, and it leads naturally, Vivek, to uh, the, the notion of a path to normalcy, uh, given the potentially extended timelines here. So uh, can you talk a little bit about the different things floating around in this basket, herd immunity, uh, you know, can we leverage those who develop immunity from having had it? You know, this notion the Germans have of, uh, you know, basically giving you a certificate and saying you, you're now immune, go back to work so that society starts to gear up again. Just this, this whole topic of path to normalcy, I know you've got a lot of thoughts on this. Can you touch on that? Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, I'm happy to talk about the notion of herd immunity and, and address any other questions. Herd immunity is not a strategy. It is a state of affairs. It is a state of affairs that describes when enough of the population is already immune to the virus that any virus doesn't spread quickly in that population. So I think a lot of people have, have uh, bantered about that term, bandied about that term. I think that that is a state of affairs, not a strategy. Now, I think a strategy here could be predicated on. I think one way out is widespread rollout of antibody testing. So the antibody test tells us whether or not you have antibodies against the virus, which tell us whether you're immune to the virus. You could have gotten it one of two ways, either through exposure to the virus. You might have been symptomatic. You might have been asymptomatic. You might have been exposed to the virus and not known it and had immunity that way as measured by antibodies in your blood. Or you can induce an antibody response through vaccination, which we don't have yet, but following the rollout of a successful vaccine, that will be the second way of generating immunity. I think our, our path, to, one path to normalcy and a path that I'd like to see further progress made on is broad rollout of our antibody test. Uh, it's an, our antibody test is not our company, I'm saying our, us as a society, rolling out the antibody test such that we actually get our arms around what portion of the population is already immune through exposures that they may not have even known that they had. It might be 10%, it might be 20%, it, we might discover that it is some higher number. Those people are gonna be able to get back to work pretty quickly, get back to normal life, because effectively they have 
the immunity badge. They have a badge in the form of their antibodies that protect them, best we know, from reinfection. On the flip side, you then have the people who don't have immunity. And the question is, those who are negative on the antibody test, what happens with them? Now, this has been, I've had other discussions in the last few days with policymakers, a couple of people in, in Congress, one U.S. Senator, and I think this is not lost on folks. But I think one early topic that's come up is, could we tolerate a national system in which certain people on the basis of a biomarker are segregated to say you can't go back to normal life where certain people get a head start? Is that an inequity we would tolerate? I personally think that it is better than the status quo. If we can send 10 or 20% of the people back on the basis of having immunity that's proven on the basis of a lab-based result that's now available, that's a good thing and everyone stands to benefit from it. But even if you disagreed with me on that, and I do think that that is a, a, an emerging debate on this topic, you also could do a service to the people who are antibody negative, who may require greater uh, shelter, greater time for their shelter in place mandates, but on the flip side, should be at the top of the list for those who actually are eligible for vaccination when vaccination comes out. As I said earlier, when a vaccine comes to market, we will most likely face a supply shortage of that vaccine, and we're going to need a scheme of prioritizing who gets that vaccine first. It would be a waste of a vaccine to use it on somebody who was already antibody positive, but it would be the highest ROI to use it, especially on somebody who was not only antibody negative, but also presented risk factors for whether or not they were going to ultimately be at higher risk of ending up in the hospital. So, so to me, that's what's missing right now. But the good news is it, what's missing is a clear national plan on how to navigate our way out, including through the use of testing. But I think the good news is I think it is doable. I think it is up to probably the government, and if not the government, then someone else, to step up and offer a roadmap to lay out, hey, here are the people who already have immunity. Get them back to normal life. Get them back to their way of life. Get them back to work. Get them to stimulate the economy. And then for everyone else who isn't, you're now, okay, you may, you may lag behind a little bit, but the flip side is you're at the highest priority for vaccination when vaccination becomes available. It's not a comprehensive plan, but if, if it were you know, up to me, I think that's what I would like to see in the form of a comprehensive national strategy for a path to normalcy. Yeah, uh, in fact, uh, two questions around this. One, uh, the, the immunity badge, uh, it, it sounded from the way you were describing it that people could have an immunity for reasons other than just having contracted the coronavirus. Can you talk about that? Is it possible because of things that people have come, come uh, into touch with over the course of their lives that they, they might be immune to this coming in? And then secondly, how long before the government would have the ability to, uh, to test the population on, on, on this kind of broad basis to figure out who gets the immunity badge and who gets back out there? Sure. So to the first question, the answer is we don't know. I think that we don't know the full set of reasons why someone might have immunity, and that's also what leads to uh, wide error bars in our estimate for what portion of the population might have immunity. Early in this epidemic, one of the things we learned was that children seemed not to be developing symptoms. Uh, there, there was an exception for children under the age of one, which we, when we saw that data is why my infant son and I chose to separate from my wife. But for children who are above the age of one, there was evidence that they were not developing the disease nearly as, as badly when they contracted it or may have even been asymptomatic when exposed. And one theory, this is not proven, but it was a theory, 
was that there's six other there's six coronaviruses in total. This is only one of the six coronaviruses. Many of the coronaviruses are benign and cause the common cold. And so one school of thought held that kids at schools were already exposed to these other coronaviruses that their immunity may have extended to applying to this novel coronavirus as well. We don't know if that was right or wrong. What we also don't know is whether there is some level, I mean, this virus is impressively infectious, right? And people are getting exposed in ways that I think far exceed what we've seen for other transmissible viruses. But what we don't know is if there's a level of subclinical exposure that you're exposed in small enough part that you go asymptomatic and don't even know it, where we might have a significant portion of the population that's actually been exposed but is, is going without symptoms, and yet may have been enough to still trigger an immune response that gives you antibody immunity. So, so the, that's a long way of saying, Greg, we don't know what the cause will be, but the only way to find out is to roll out broad-based antibody testing to the population. Then to the second question of, you, you were saying it in terms of what would, the, what would the capacity be? Look, I think this is a matter for investment in this particular type of antibody test. There's labs across the country that are developing antibody tests now. Look, we just passed a multi-trillion dollar stimulus package to deal with the second order effects of this virus. I think it will require a large investment, but a drop in the bucket compared to the total economic cost and toll we're already incurring to set up a, a mandatory program of, of effectively at-home testing that's universally available and applied where we actually are then able to answer that question, is it 5%, is it 10%, is it 20% of the population, or is it more that have a level of immunity? And then that also gives us the ability to wrap our arms around how big our supply needs for vaccination are actually going to be. And the flip side is once we do get vaccination, it would be a, it would be a waste, uh, arguably, to vaccinate somebody who already had immunity. And I think that the only way to really ensure that we're sending the right people back to normal life now versus the people who we keep in shelter at home mandates is on the basis of individual testing for, for immunity. The same thing will apply in reverse for the people who we prioritize for vaccination. So, you know, it, it rough... Rough, rough estimates, 25 bucks a pop. You know, I think that that's what some of the ranges are being thrown out for, for the cost of this antibody test. That would be $7 billion for the, you know, entire U.S. population. It's not a not a small number. There will be added costs for the at-home component of it. But as I said, is is arguably a, a drop compared to the costs we are already incurring directly and indirectly from the current shelter-at-home mandates and the direct costs no of the virus itself. Yeah, no question. And the cost that uh, the longer the uh, the period here, the, those costs obviously are going up uh, uh, at a spectacular rate, given the, the the size of the denominator going into it. Vivek, when when would that be? When would those at-home tests, twenty-five dollars a pop, that could be administered in whatever way needed to have happen, and then get to a lab in a timely way and rolled out efficiently? When could all of that come together? Is that several months away? Is that sooner? You know, and I know there's a there have to be an efficient entity to to oversee this. Let's hope that somebody in the federal government or working with the states could do it. But is is uh, are the tests? And, and again, you hear you read lots of things about English have this at home test, and you don't even need the doctor there, and some tests require a swab. So where is it in terms of the ability to actually physically test 350 million Americans and, and send it to a lab on a 
on a timely basis. How, how far away is that if it was organized in an efficient manner? Yes, yeah, so, so the thing, Greg, is I think here, the good news is unlike on the vaccine, when you know, the, the how far is it away, I think the science is the rate limiting step right now of coming up with and testing a vaccine that works. Right now, I think we're at a point with the antibody test where the science is not the rate limiting factor. So that's the good news. I think the bad news is that it's gonna require a level of logistical coordination and investment in that strategy that we haven't yet seen. Now, I think it's still pretty early days until we've gotten a version of, or multiple versions of the antibody test. I believe the FDA has, has recently okayed one. Uh, you know, I think where this is now becoming relevant, but as, a, as an unscientific estimate, I think this could be with the right level of prioritization and focus could be a matter of a couple months, a program of universal national testing on the base of the antibody test to see who's immune and who's not as the backbone of our get back to work and get the economy restarted strategy, as well as our vaccine preparedness and prioritization strategy. But I think that will take a level of not only dollar investment, but leadership and coordination to be able to, to make that a reality. But if it were, I think within a couple months, I think that we, we, we have accomplished greater things in our national history than that when we've put our attention to it. Well, uh, uh, from my vantage point, I'd love to put you front and center on that, given uh, listening to you here for, uh, for this time. Uh, Vivek, that, that's terrific. I am coming back to you here after uh, I, I talked to Jimmy about markets and, and Asia, but that was uh, fantastic. Thank you very much, and we'll, we'll circle back to you and, uh, and let you put a wrap on all this. Thank you, Greg. Uh, Jimmy Chang, you there? Yes, Greg. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jimmy. Welcome back. Uh, uh, let's build on, uh, on the, the medical momentum that uh, Vivek just set out uh, and, and talk a little bit about uh, markets and uh, what's happening in, in, uh, in Asia. Um, so, you know, if we start with the market, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously been <laughs> volatile. Um, the fastest drawdown in the equity market uh, ever. Uh, and then snap back of 18% in three days, and then more recent weakness again. Um, what's your overall assessment uh, two weeks on here of the economy and uh, the market? Yes, Greg. Um, I think what we're looking at is a tug of war between two major forces. On the negative side, we have a sharp decline in aggregate demand, not just here, but it's worldwide. You know, this is a global lockdown, a global recession. Uh, it is unprecedented, uh, you know, in scale, you know, as a negative shock. But on the positive side, we're seeing also unprecedented policy responses in both monetary and fiscal stimulus. So the market initially reacted to the economic shock and dropped 35% peak to trough. And then it rallied on the expectation of the rescue measures from the government. However, the forces on both sides will take time to play out. So don't expect a quick bottom and a V-shaped recovery. This is going to, you know, take some time to play out. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so if we go from, uh, uh, you know, move to the earnings front, uh, you know, it's hard to believe that there's the normal side of life here as well. We're starting to head into earnings season. Uh, you know, the, the jobless, the new jobless claims are, um, are uh, 
you know, in numbers. And, and when you look at the graph, we obviously, and here I would probably say we, meaning everybody in society, thought they'd never see uh, bars like that. Um, so uh, what, what, what are we going to see from companies here uh, uh, as they, they, they move through this quarter and, and farther into 2020 and, uh, and, and, and even beyond? Yeah, I think investors will give most companies a pass for the first half of 2020, and most companies probably cannot give any credible guidance. I mean, this is just uncharted territory. Uh, investors will instead focus on balance sheet strength and the recovery potential to separate the strong ones from the weak ones. And as for the market, I think the panic phase where some funds were forced to sell whatever they could in order to meet margin calls and redemption is probably over, but the market needs time to build a base to deal with the aftershocks of the economic collapse. Uh, the, the bottoming will take months and much will depend on how we deal with the COVID containment. So going forward, I think we will become more, you know, more discerning in separating the potential winners from losers. And in essence, you know, this is an, you know, a you know, so-called stock pickers market and that favors active management. Jimmy, when when you uh, you know the flip side of the equation though is the the stimulus. Uh, uh, you're you just wrote a report where you 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 cataloged it. You've got uh, you know stimulus fiscal stimulus in the U.S. of approximately 10% of GDP. I think it was five trillion of uh, uh, committed stimulus around the world everywhere, including uh, you know throughout the European countries. Uh, Germany stepped up with a uh, huge number for, for Germany, given their reticence to, to go down that path before this. The Fed basically saying we're, we're doing unlimited quantitative easing. So, you know, the other side of the equation, what is going to be the, the impact of all of this, uh, the, you know, this massive set of stimulus on, on all sides? You know, what, you know, what the Fed has been doing is simply unprecedented. And I, I'm using the term unprecedented a lot because it's truly unprecedented. They used to do quantitative easing at a pace of $60 billion a month. And last month, they were buying $75 billion of assets each day. And that pace is now slowed down to $60 billion a day. So that liquidity injection will reliquify the market and allow proper price discovery. However, the liquidity injection cannot solve the solvency issue if, com you know, you know, if company sales and cash flows are collapsing. So this is where the fiscal spending comes in, which basically puts money in consumers' pockets, $1,200 per adult, making below $75,000 a year, to offset the impact of job losses you know, in the meantime for the next you know, two, three months. The fiscal programs will also pay small businesses to not lay off employees for eight weeks and have some targeted bailout by industry. It's more about buying time, uh, you know, rather than stimulating the economy. So ultimately, we need to bend the curve and get back to work as soon as possible to get the economy going. And, uh, you know, assuming there will be no additional lockdown after the current phase of lockdown is lifted, the economy should start to recover sometimes in the third quarter. Jimmy, let's shift gears from the, the, the economy and the markets to China, uh, which um, given uh, the fact that it's, uh, it's reopened and to, to some degree, I don't want to talk to you about that, uh, 
you've got a lot of insight into uh, what's going on the ground, uh, what's happening on the ground there. Uh, you know, there have been, uh, there's this notion of no new cases, and then now you're hearing about, well, yes, there's actually cases which are asymptomatic, and, and uh, you know, there are people supposedly back in restaurants, and, and then maybe, maybe, uh, maybe more social distancing than, uh, than is let on. What's really going on in, in, in China, and are there, uh, you know, green shoots and, and positive things from China that, uh, that are on the horizon here, if we can uh, break, you know, bend the curve, that phrase that uh, everybody uses now? Yeah, I think the good news is that life is really gradually getting back to normal in China. Uh, even the city of Wuhan, which is where the virus started, uh, you know, they're gradually getting back to business. Uh, Nike has reported that their stores in Wuhan are now open, and uh, the, the, the Wuhan government and the central government is planning to, you know, reopen the city to, to, to outsiders uh, planned for April 8th. And also as a sign of confidence in containing the outbreak, Schools in various Chinese provinces are starting to open. Um, you know that started on March 30th, and some will, uh, you know, open. You know, no later than middle of March. Uh, 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 I mean, middle of April. So, so most Chinese are, you know, starting to get back to work. And I would say most factories are 80 to 90 percent capacity. Um, Foxconn, a manufacturer for Apple, said that they have the capacity to meet Apple's new product rollouts. You know, later in the year. And when you look at the traffic, you know, subways are getting crowded again. Uh, people have ventured back to restaurants, and but 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 you know, for certain sectors, you know, such as retail and hospitality, will take much longer to recover, and some of them will go out of business. Um, but for a country of 1.3 billion people, it's hard to believe that there are no new confirmed domestic cases. Um, but you know, they they are you know moving the right direction. Their biggest challenge right now is with imported cases from overseas. So they have recently closed the border to foreigners, and anyone who arrives in China today from abroad will be quarantined for 14 days. Um, on the economic front, you know, they're trying to stimulate consumption, and many provinces are asking public sector workers and officials to visit restaurants and cafes as much as they can. Um, but of course, the big challenge for them is also now seeing the decline in export orders as the rest of the world is, you know, getting to lockdowns and is mired in a recession. Yeah, uh, Jimmy, what about if we move from China to some of the other Asian countries that uh, are credited uh, with having uh, contained the outbreak, whether that's South Korea or Hong Kong or, or uh, your, uh, your native Taiwan? Can you talk about what's going on there and, and uh, uh, you know, ha have they really controlled it, and uh, are are people living normally, or uh, do they do they have a fear that it, it could still bubble? Uh, what what's happening on the ground in those countries? Yeah, I think those countries are the, the good news is they are truly role models for the rest of the world. You know, these Asian tigers, South Korea, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. I mean, no one is out of the woods yet, um, but they're doing a much better job containing the outbreak. Now they have coped relatively well um, because they were more prepared due to the SARS experience from 17 years ago. So they went on high alert as soon as Wuhan was locked down in late January. And then you see the common threats among these countries uh, are extensive testing, uh, very comprehensive contact tracing with the help of technology and big data, 
um, there's self-quarantine compliance, and everyone wears a mask to, to help reduce the transmission. Um, there's also a social cohesion such that people tend to modify their behavior and act responsibly without the government having to lock down the country. Um, today in Taiwan, where I was born, uh, you know, it's pretty much business as usual, you know, with stores, bars, and restaurants still being open. Uh, you know, of course, the foot traffic has declined some. Uh, in South Korea and Hong Kong, businesses, stores, and restaurants are also still open. Um, but of course, everyone's still very cautious and everyone is worried about imported cases, so they have all closed on the borders. Now, I think hopefully we can get to where they are today in a month or two. If we buy the bullet now, stay at home, help you know, to bend the curve, and then act responsibly when we eventually return to work. Um, so, so Greg, you know, let me pose two questions at you. Um, you know, we, you know, we, we talked about the economy being, being really weak right now. Uh, the initial, you know, the initial jobless claims finding has been unprecedented with, you know, about 10 million jobs lost during the last two weeks. And in spite of the federal government's effort to offer business incentives to keep people on the payrolls, many industries are forced to let people go because the demand has just collapsed. I read one restaurant chain had to let go 3,500 employees and just keep six people on their payroll to keep the lights on and pay the rent. And in some cases, many restaurants are skipping rent. Um, Boeing, you know, really the pride of American manufacturing power has begun voluntarily laying people off because demand for aircraft has, you know, been, you know, pushed out, something canceled. So the road to recovery is very uncertain. Now, Wall Street is a cyclical business, and so, so there's obviously the worry that we will also see many jobs being cut, um, and these are good jobs. So, so what are your thoughts on these bread and butter issues? Well, Jimmy, this is a, a theme that, that uh, I and many have been on uh, for weeks. Uh, and, and in fairness to the federal government and Secretary Mnuchin, um, they're trying. And they got it. They heard it directly and on many levels, just as Vivek was saying before, he's talking to people in Congress about the medical side of things here. Uh, the messages have been getting across around small business in particular because uh, bigger firms are better able to, uh, to, to have the cushion to get through several months. Uh, but the engine of growth of both employment and economic growth in this country, and frankly, one of the reasons why we have one of the greatest economies in the world is the small business sector. And you're talking about 30 million small businesses with 16 million employees. So yes, the numbers have been big so far, but they can get a lot bigger. So they are trying and they get that and they're trying to get the money directly to the companies to, to get them to keep the workers on the payroll. They also came up with something uh, that was a positive uh, uh, in, in terms of the delivery mechanism. So this is happening through banks because the Small Business Administration and the federal government was simply not capable or qualified to efficiently move this money out to these 30 million small businesses. They didn't have a relationship with them. They couldn't find them. You couldn't allow an application process. It would take too long. Whereas the banks are all lending to these businesses so the relationships are in place through the banks. So they were smart to set the delivery mechanism up through the banks. But the banks are frankly overwhelmed now. I mean, the, the, the requests are, are incredible. Even for 
you know, efficient and well-run and big banks, uh, the, the, the things coming through are, are, uh, are massive and, 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 and broad-based and, and really unfathomable, just like a lot of the other things we talk about now. Uh, we're talking about things that uh, you thought you'd never see. So the banks are overwhelmed, and, and, and frankly, it's a race against time, and we need to do better as a society because th these job loss figures can continue on like this uh, uh, if, um, if we, we don't get the money in the hands of these companies and these uh, smaller firms to, to get them to retain and hold on to the workers. Um, you know, there's two things happening that we're racing, uh, uh, racing against from uh, the standpoint of uh, the employment uh, in our country and the workforce. One is this, trying to get money to places where a business that's a great business or was a great business a month ago, and you heard me give the example uh, a few weeks ago on CNBC that if you had $120 in revenue, $10 uh, a month, and all of a sudden you don't have three or four months revenue, even if it's a great business, you can't get to the other side. So that has to be bridged, that $20, $30, $40 of revenue. So we're in a race to try to make that happen. They're trying. In fairness, they're trying hard. But there's still some some uh, partisanship around the, the magnitude. The number here really shouldn't be too big, whatever it is. And what, what they put on the table isn't big enough. And they need to come back with more money specifically on this program, and they need to do that uh, quickly. And then the other race is to try to bend the curve all the way back to the VET conversation and figure out how we can get some of those 60 million employees who might have immunity back into the workforce. Uh, and, and that race is, a, is another one that, that we need to, to do better on. So um, uh, it's, a, it's a major concern because this is what's going to drive the, the, uh, the, the magnitude of the downturn and the uh, slope of that recovery that you said V-shaped will be tough. Whatever the slope of that is is going to be determined by how many of these jobs and how many of these companies we can get through this so they don't have to start over uh, whatever that time is, uh, uh, you know, whether it's hopefully June, July, but, um, you know, when you listen to Vivek, the notion of, of, of us being completely past this where, where people can be vaccinated is, is pretty far out. So we, we need to do better on this topic. Thanks, Greg. So on the lighter side, I'm looking for entertainment on weekends to take my mind off the problems. You are a friend of Derek Jeter, who is the president of the Florida Marlins and also a senior advisor to our firm. I think you're also a part owner uh, in the baseball team. So, so how will the Major League Baseball deal with COVID-19? Will the 2020 season be canceled? Or will teams play in front of empty stadiums or have fans sitting in every other role and in every other chair? Jimmy, it's a great question because it's a broader question. Uh, uh, because the, the consequences, and, and this isn't getting a lot of attention because of, you know, for good reason, everything that's on the front page. But the cost from a societal and human standpoint, families of having people uh, not be able to go out and, and be in whatever, wherever they are, in, including in, in big cities where you might be in a, a relatively smaller space, the cost of that is very high. And, and people are starting to talk about the, some of the negative things that come out of this, including uh, you know, uh, you know, topics that are are uh, are, are, are very concerning to, to all of us, whether it's mental health or, um, you know, or other issues along those lines. So, um, sports is a great 
uh, antidote to that. Uh, there's no question. So baseball is, is, is desperately looking at all options to try to figure out if, if uh, the games could be played. You know, given what uh, Vivek said uh, and, and the timelines he ran through, probably hard to have big crowds in stadiums. Um, but, uh, you know, even if you played without fans, but you played the games and they were available to be consumed by people who want to watch baseball, and there's obviously many, many people who do that, um, that would be a good thing. And basketball is thinking about the same thing. They're also playing with timelines, Jimmy, which, uh, you know, again, will come down to what, what actually happens here. Um, but you could, uh, if, if, uh, if we make progress on the virus for any of the reasons that Vivek set out, you, you could see, uh, you know, the Masters and golf played in the, in the you know, deep into the year. Uh, you could see baseball, uh, you know, the, the World Series in the winter in a warm weather park. You could see, uh, you know, NBA finals, uh, you know, late summer. I mean, they're, they're, they're all thinking through ways of, of still delivering the product. And I give them a lot of credit for that. Look, there's a major business side to it, no question. But there's a recognition of the people involved, including obviously Derek, who's been on both sides of this, uh, about the value to uh, to people who, who uh, are, are living in a way that uh, none of us were conditioned to for all of our lives, however long those lives have been. The value of something like baseball to consume, even if it's uh, if it's mostly on a device. So. Um, uh, as always, uh, uh, Jimmy's terrific, uh, and, and my deal with Jimmy is he gets to, to uh, uh, put back a couple questions, so thank you for, for that, Jimmy. And I did promise uh, everybody here that I wanted to um, circle back uh, to uh, Vivek uh, and, and, and give him kind of the final word here on, on an optimistic note. Uh, I, I warned him I was going to try to uh, come with a, uh, an optimistic note, so hopefully he's uh, he's got something and some uh, some words that he can uh, leave us with here that uh, uh, that uh, send us on our way, feeling like uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel. So Vivek, uh, back to you for um, for the final word on the on the medical and societal side. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am an optimist, Greg. So that's that's not um, you know I think that's not too difficult. I think it, look, history teaches us a lot. It was only a few years after the Spanish influenza epidemic of 1918 that we were also in the thick of World War I, that we catapulted forward into the roaring 20s. And now a century later, I'm actually pretty optimistic about our path to entering the roaring 20s of our new century now as well. And I do think it matters how the, the role that leadership plays, I think, makes a difference. But I think with the right leadership, I do think we can come out of this even stronger as a country. I was in high school myself during 9-11, but the thing that I definitely will not forget about 9-11 is the way that our country came together as one unified people. Short-lived as it was, it was something unique and probably the most memorable part of that experience for me wasn't watching the planes hit the building, but watching the ways in which people in our community in Cincinnati at my high school, et cetera, came together. And it's definitely been a couple of decades since then. And if I just look at this in the context of recent history, I'd say that over the last decade, we've done a great job of celebrating our differences, but also quibbling over them. And I think that this pandemic actually has an opportunity to mark a bookend of that chapter of our history 
and to start a new chapter where this virus actually reminds us of our commonality. It affects anyone, whether they're male or female, black or white, Democrat or Republican. It does disproportionately impact elder Americans, but even that reveals something we share in common in that if we're not over the age of 60, like me, we definitely hope to be one day. And I think the fact that our greatest vulnerability is actually shared equally right now is something that has the potential to, I think, revive a sense of commonality that we haven't experienced in over a couple, in nearly a couple of decades since 9-11. And so if that's something positive to come out of this, I think that it will be, I wouldn't say that we would, it would have been worth it. I think that we still want to live in a world in which we didn't have to go through this experience in the way that we have. But I think it has an opportunity to remind us what we share in common as a people. And also when I think about people like my wife and her colleagues working alongside her in the hospital right now, just like we thought about the first responders in 9-11, it's also an opportunity to remind ourselves of what true heroism is all about as well. And so if that's something to come out of this, then I think that it's something we ought to be grateful for as well. That's what I'll say, Greg. That was very well said. Uh, not going to try to add to that. It was terrific. Um, I want to thank uh, Vivek and Jimmy for uh, the outstanding insights here and uh, a fluency with their topics uh, at a time when um, so many uh, that are out there in one form or another uh, are saying things that are, are hard to understand or uh, just are, are flat out not, not accurate. So that was a terrific job by, by both of you. Thank you both for being here. Um, I will close. Uh, uh, with uh, uh, Vivek's optimistic tone and quote, uh, Nelson Mandela, the employees at Rockefeller will know I, I like this quote. Uh, he faced uh, tremendous adversity over the course of his life and dealt with it in a fashion uh, that leaves him one of the most admired human beings in history, and that's why I like this so much. He said, and it's directly applicable to this time, it always seems impossible until it is done. So uh, on behalf of all of my colleagues at Rockefeller Capital Management, thank you to Vivek and to Jimmy. Uh, thank you for uh, the loyalty of our clients, uh, many of whom are on the phone today. We will continue to do all we can uh, to counsel you and advise you as wisely as possible during this difficult time. And we will continue to bring best-in-class insight like you heard today from Vivek and Jimmy uh, on forums like this as we move forward. So thanks again.